Hey everyone, welcome to episode 81 of SOP Collaborate and Listen. Hope you're all uh, recovering from the election. Um, I'm excited for this week's guest, Cody Duncan. Uh, he joined us all the way from Lofoten, Norway, and uh, he's an awesome dude and an inspiring photographer. Um, I had a really great time talking to him um, about his experience living in Lofoten and uh how he has seen that location change in dramatic ways over the years, um, probably because of landscape photography. So uh, I think it's an interesting episode this week. Um, Special thanks to our Patreon supporters and podcast producers. These amazing folks contribute at the $20 a month level or higher on Patreon at patreon.com. F-stop and listen. Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stenslin, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, and Charlotte Gibb. You guys are awesome. Enjoy the show. All right, man. Well, uh, Cody Duncan, thank you so much for joining me on F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Hi, Matt. Uh, yeah, pleasure to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. All the way from Norway, yeah? Yep. Stormy Norway tonight. <laughs> Stormy Norway. Nice. Yeah. I think it's going to rain it? for the next 24 hours straight. Oh, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? uh if i want to be lazy it's a good thing if i want to do something it's a bad thing but yeah it reminds me of when i lived in portland it was like oh it's raining i can drink beer all night sweet basically (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh well cool man so so originally you're from california and then you moved to norway like two and a half years ago is that right yeah i've been living here about two and a half years since uh early 2016 um yeah what uh what prompted you to make that move uh basically i was traveling here too much and i wasn't (laughs) going to any other places i thought i might should go might want to go to and so it's kind of had been 20 trips in 15 years wow coming out here and so it started kind of like one trip for a week or two per year then two trips and then three trips for three to four weeks each trip and then i just decided like uh Maybe I can apply for a visa and see if they'll let me in. And they did. Wow. <laughs> so so I, I, obviously there's something about Norway that speaks to you photographically, huh? <laughs> yeah. it's uh, Growing up in Southern California, I would describe the weather as, for a photographer, boring. Um, 300 days of sunshine and blue sky a year. So uh, Norway is kind of a more dramatic version, I would say. Right. Um, do you find yourself uh, drawn to specific types of landscape in Norway? Yeah, I, I grew up in Santa Barbara, California originally, so I was always kind of between the ocean and the mountains. Yeah. Both have been equally important parts of my life. And so whenever I've kind of lived near like flat places but with ocean or else mountains but somewhere inland, I always actually get a bit homesick. And so Norway, and specifically where I live in Lofoten Islands, is kind of, for me, a perfect combination of mountains and ocean. Right. I can go surfing, or I can go hiking, and so it's, yeah, for me, it's perfect out here. Yeah, I'm always jealous when people uh, take trips to Norway, because um, just based on the photographs, it seems like uh, a perfect place for what speaks to me as a photographer, too, like... You've got kind of the best of both worlds. You have the ocean, you have like dramatic mountainscapes, um, which seem to be relatively accessible. Um, 
and then you also have the Northern Lights to make it even more awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit of a paradise actually. Yeah. Um, especially here in Lofoten, it's our mountains aren't so high. In uh, West Lofoten, where I live, the highest mountains a little over a thousand meters, but the islands aren't so wide. So within like an hour or two from the door, I can be in any number of fantastic views. Yeah. So it's 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 quite the access is quite easy. Right. Um, compared to say in the Alps where everything's up high and you have to take a cable lift or blah, blah, blah. So right, it's right, right. quick and easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, it's definitely like top of my list of places I want to visit. Um, so you said you, the first time you went there was like 15 years ago. Like what prompted you to visit for the first time? Uh, yeah. My first visit to Norway was in uh, the summer of 2001. Wow. And actually it's, um, I was actually meant to go to Scotland and it was my first trip ever to Europe, just on summer between university. But uh, the UK had like a foot and mouth disease outbreak that year. <laughs> and so basically the whole countryside in the UK was like, oh, you can't go anywhere here. So I was like, okay, go to Norway. What? And, uh, and Sweden as well. <laughs> so it was just by chance. <laughs> yeah, quite quite randomly by chance. Yeah. And then, uh, and then for Lofoten specifically, I've never even heard of Lofoten. Until I was in uh, a town called Buda across the fjord on the mainland. And I only ended up there because it was north of the Arctic Circle where the train stopped. And I thought it'd be cool to go north of the Arctic Circle. And then uh, talking to some guys at the hostel, they're like, oh, are you going to Lofoten? I'm like, what's that? And like, oh, take the ferry out to those islands. And uh, yeah, 15 plus years later, I live here. Wow. So I'm really curious to hear about... Um, since you've been visiting it, sounds like almost every year for the last 15 years, like how has it changed over those 15 years? Um, tourism wise, there's been quite a bit, quite a dramatic change, actually. Um, the, the summers have always been busy up here. Like Lofoten is quite a known destination amongst Europeans specifically. So there's always had like the, the summer tourism season. But uh, it's really only in the last three, maybe four years that photography, and specifically in winter, has really, really exploded. Um, so it used to be like 2013, two th- even 2014, I could be here in January, February, March for a couple weeks and basically have like any beach for sunrise or sunset to myself, nobody else around. But kind of, yeah, starting 2015 was the first kind of photo workshops and other groups started showing up. And I think for next year, 2019, I think there will be over 100 photo workshops occurring between mid-January and mid-March. Wow! How, just on Lofoten alone. How do you how do you find that? Found out about that information? Like, how do you know there's that many? Uh, I just had a one of my assistants just do a bit of research just to see what was oh. out there, <laughs> and and that's that's only googling kind of like a few of the main languages. So. I'm sure, like, and that's not including, like, friends or just personal trips. So that's just commercial tours. That's insane. So, yeah, I think I wrote, like, my first business plan to try and move to Norway back in 2012 to 13. And I think back then for all of Lofoten, there were two two workshops occurring the entire year. (laughs) So Wow. So that's basically a 50-fold increase. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy, man. Yes. And that's just in the last like three or four yeah, years? Yeah, mainly since 2015, winter 2015 for, for photography. Jeez, that's kind of insane. Yeah, so it's 
for like for me personally when I'm on my own I'm actually I'm actually quite happy for it because I could naturally be a bit lazy and just go to the same beaches over and over and over again but uh since when I'm on my own I don't really like crowds that much so it's actually pushed me up into the mountains and so even in the winter time now I spend almost all my time my personal photography time in the mountains which then I get much much better work I think than visiting the same beaches so personally I, I kind of like it a bit yeah dude actually I, I I love that I love the fact that you've taken uh a I don't know like a negative influence in terms of like how many people are going there and turn that into like okay how do I how do I find better more interesting and different uh locations and scenes to photograph because that's that's something I try to do myself. Like, you know, I live in Southwest Colorado, which, you know, in the fall turns into a total zoo of, of, of photographers and leaf peepers. And it same thing. I like in the fall, like I try to go to like totally like off the beaten path places that other people haven't photographed before. So I think that's, I love the way you put a spin on that, that it's been, a, it's been actually been a good thing for you personally. Yeah, definitely. And even in, in the height of summer, just main tourism season with like thousands of people out hiking and exploring, it may feel crowded if you go to the wrong places where everybody else is going, but there's still hundreds and hundreds of mountains here that are empty. And I can <laughs> camp with some of the best views all summer long, just me and whoever I chose to go hiking with. So yeah, it's it can feel crowded if you don't leave the roads or the, the popular beaches, but there's still plenty of empty spaces here yeah. for years to come, I think. Yeah. So what do you, what do you attribute that, that significant increase in growth? I mean, 50 fold growth in three, four years, like that's insane. So what do you, what do you think the main factors of that are? I think for the winter specifically in photography, I think Northern lights are a big factor in, in driving the winter tourism to Northern Scandinavia. Because uh, places like over in Abisko in Sweden and up north in Tromsø, they're all places that have experienced like huge, huge increases in winter tourism, mm -hmm. where they used to almost be ghost towns in winter not that long ago. Right. And so perhaps that's a bit of marketing. Perhaps it's changing camera technology, which makes Northern Lights photography much more accessible yeah. um, to the average person than it was, say, five or ten years ago. Yeah. Um, it's easier to get here now. Like there's more flights from the continent or from the UK directly to Tromso and some of the other places in the north. And I, I think uh, the look of winters may be also quite popular amongst photographers. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I don't it's funny. Um I I I actually got so lucky I uh I got to photograph the Northern Lights for the first time this year, actually, um in Iceland and and you're right, like probably seven, eight, nine years ago, that probably wouldn't have been very accessible on a DSLR. Um, and now with the advancement of technology, it's a lot more um, feasible to, to take good photographs because um, you need high ISO and like a relatively fast shutter speed for a night photo in order to, uh, to execute uh, a good uh, Northern Lights photo, which <laughs> I was totally ill-prepared for as a night photographer. I was like, oh, this is this is different. This is not like taking pictures of the stars. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like uh, as fast as you can go, basically. Or not always, but most of the time, the faster the better. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, even sometimes um, 
I was in like a KP six storm and like I was like even two and a half seconds was like there was a lot of blurring and stuff like that. Like two like two seconds, one and a half. Like if you can pull it off, it's yeah, it's tough though. Even with ISOs in sixty four hundred, ten thousand, it's still pretty tough. Yeah, definitely. Like when it when it starts dancing, it actually I think I yeah. think when people see it in real like a really good one in real life, they actually don't believe that it moves as fast as it does. Oh, it's, yeah. it's actually it does, man. Like I'm still all inspired half the time when I see a good night and it's just like it's just incredible still. Dude, yeah. dude, I know like uh we were uh we were actually lucky enough to be a Vesterhorn when we had that happen in Iceland and and it was like I couldn't even take a picture of it because it was moving so fast. I was just like, I'm forget about it. I'm putting my camera away and I'm just going to stare, stare at the sky. Cause this is insane. <laughs> yeah. When, when it gets big, like I wish there's like, I had 10 of me with 10 cameras and just, cause you don't know which <laughs> right? way to look. As soon as you set up one shot, then it's moved somewhere else. And it's just, I know, man. And then sometimes it just, the entire sky looks like there's a giant like UFO coming to like suck up the earth or something. Like the whole sky is just <laughs> filled with light, and it's like you just look and you're just like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> Dude, I, I know. I it's it's hard to put words to uh, to the experience, especially the very first time you see it dancing like that. Like it is, I mean, it's it's whipping around in the sky like a snake. I mean, it is so insane. Yeah, like if I can use a bit of language, I would. I've kind of discounted the. Uh, Discounted the uh, the KP index and I've invented the holy shit index of how many times <laughs> I've mentioned that per minute and yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah yeah I think we I think we used the same measurement when we were there too yeah. <laughs> so uh, well let me ask you this man like when um, when it's winter time there um, which I guess basically is like right now up until like April like how how many nights um, per month do you get to actually see the active aurora? Uh, here in Lofoten, it, it really depends because we're so weather dependent. Mm-hmm. But I would mm-hmm. guess if, if, say, we had clear skies every night of the month, we'd probably have 20-plus nights of northern lights in a month. Um, if that was like we had 100% clear skies. Um, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like last year in September was like almost perfect the entire month, barely any rain, and I was out a lot. I got actually lazy and just didn't even start leaving my house some nights when it wasn't like fully dancing. Um, <laughs> right, Trump, you're like, oh, it's only a KP four. I'm just gonna stay yeah. home. <laughs> like up in Tromso, there are probably six nights, a, six plus nights a week if it was 100 percent clear skies. Wow. So, uh, so and. Like, so there's lots of talk about, like, the sun going through a solar minimum and all that. But, like, last year's aurora season was the best I've ever experienced. But that was also because we had lots and lots of clear sky last year. Right, 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 right. this year it kind of started raining about September 12th, and it just stopped raining last week. (laughs) So (laughs) not many, not much this year so far, but there's there's been some good nights. Yeah. Um, So... Uh, what are some of what are some of the other areas uh, that you like to to travel to, and what 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 is it about those places um, that that uh, draws you to them? I'd say after kind of northern Norway, uh, northwest Scotland, uh, yeah, more specifically yeah. the Outer Hebrides, and then maybe up in 
uh, Orkney Islands in the northeast of Scotland. Yeah. Are uh, a couple of other favorite locations of mine. And I actually just took a road trip there in May just to go, yeah, some personal photography. Um, I think um, I, I like islands a lot for some reason. Maybe it's kind of part of the journey of you're separating and you have a ferry ride or something, so it feels like you're getting yeah. more away to the middle of nowhere than just driving down some roads or flying in some airport. Right. So, yeah, so I've always been a bit more drawn to islands. Yeah. Um, Landscape-wise, also New Zealand is quite amazing. It's it's a bit quite similar to Norway as well. Mm. And uh, I lived there for about a year right out of uh, university. So the early start of my photography career. Awesome. Yeah. Have you ever been to the um, Aran Islands of Ireland? No, I've only actually ever been to Dublin in Ireland. Um, okay. Yeah. You should check it out, dude. It's um, I've only been there once and it was not a photography trip at all, but uh, it's like, it's super medieval feeling. Like, um, I don't know, like it's, how do I describe it? Um, they like way back, like, you know, thousand years ago, they, um, they built all these stone fences out of rocks and it's like the whole Island is just strewn with all these stone fences, like in like miles and miles of stone fences. It's crazy. Yeah. I've probably seen pictures of landscape and, and Scotland has like those, just how many like uncountless miles of stone wall. And you think right. of like how many hours must have this taken to build over the the years, and it's just incredible. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, if you don't have a Instagram to distract you, what else are you gonna do? Yeah, you got to keep the sheep in the fields. So yeah, I just gotta go build some rock fences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so wow, dude. So one of the other questions I had for you is like, what do you feel like? What do you feel like um, the effects of uh, different locations you've been to? What do you think social media, what what impact do you think social media has had on those places that, that you like to photograph? I think there's there's definitely more people traveling than ever, I think, nowadays. Um, like, yeah, in, as I was saying, in the springtime, I was over in Scotland. And, like, Isle of Skye is a, a place I've spent, yeah, maybe a year or so of my life there in total. But I haven't been back in about four years since uh, 2014 was my last trip. And so coming back in May, I thought like, oh, maybe they'll, they'll be a bit busy, but not too bad. It's not the high summer season. But I was actually completely shocked about uh, some of the development that's gone on. Like there's big parking lots built where there just used to be a small pullout for a couple cars. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like some famous locations like the Ferry Pools, which it was just some rivers like 10 years ago that you maybe go walk down and now it's like there's huge buses and like the tour buses and wow. everything there. And so, yeah, it's definitely put like locations like that on the map and as, as destinations that people now know of and have to go to and plan their trips around visiting. Whereas I think before so much social media existed, people would maybe go to a destination but they wouldn't have like this top five or 10 bucket list of what they had to do. Mm-hmm. They'd maybe just kind of see what was there a bit more. Right. And as, but now everything seems much more like destination and goal oriented. Yeah. Than before. And as a landscape photographer, like, like how does that make you feel? And what is the, what does that impact had on you as somebody who makes their living off of, um, 
off of tourism and land, and people's interest in in specific destinations. Yeah, like I myself, I'm definitely a part of the problem because I do tours here in Lofoten and write quite a lot about Lofoten. So it's uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword in that you want people to go out and enjoy nature as much as they can, and it's good that they're yeah experiencing new experiences. But on the other hand, how many people can actually go and do this before the location itself gets ruined? Right. And it's not the location or it's not the experience that maybe you first had when you first discovered it. Right. And so I think the discovery aspect of some things is getting a bit lost. But it's also not like there's plenty of amazing other places that aren't out there. It's just maybe it's not written about so much so people don't know to go there. And so there's still plenty of hidden spots, especially in Norway. Like Norway is filled with amazing stuff, but it's just not in any of the guidebooks or maybe not written about in English. And so nobody knows to go there. Yeah, and uh, how do we how do we keep it that way? <laughs> It, it's difficult. Like, uh, we have a specific mountain here in Lofoten called Reinebringen. And over the last, like, three, three-ish years, it's experienced, like, an incredible growth in popularity, mainly based on social media. And it's basically, like, a steep, muddy hike up, like, up a steep hillside for 500 meters. And uh, it's, it's become so popular that the trail's basically been completely eroded. And so now, now they have a, a team of Sherpas from Nepal coming to build like a stone pathway up the, up the mountain. <laughs> and so they've been working on it for three years now. They're still not finished. But in when they're working here, like they close the mountain down so they can work. But then people still go around the barriers. And even this year, and I think it was in September, people went around the barriers. And then one of them ended up getting injured and had to be helicopter rescued off the mountain. And uh, so then it's like, why are you coming here just to hike this specific mountain? There's hundreds of other places on Lofoten to go, and there's hundreds of other equally good views. But then uh, once they finish the mountain, maybe it's good that if everybody just wants to go to this mountain, go there, and then it leaves the rest of the countryside relatively undisturbed from the mm -hmm. masses of people. So a bit of like a triage, you're cutting off your hand to save the rest of your arm, for example. <laughs> but... I don't quite know which is the best solution, though. Like, do you sacrifice one area so the rest can stay relatively quiet and peaceful, or do you just spread everybody out? As right. As like, um, I've <clears throat> there's a group of photographers that um, that I belong to that we're we're trying to think about that specifically and how to promote, you know, a different way to think about it. But uh, we 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 often argue the same way. Like, is it like is it good to have these like kind of sacrificial uh, locations that, that, that draw like hundreds of thousands of people so that, so that the rest of the, the rest of the locations can, can remain pristine or, or is it better to spread everyone out and hope for, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I feel like you could make arguments either way. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think it, like, I'm not convinced either way. <laughs> um, which it should go but I'm, I'm kind of more going on the sacrifice a couple places um to save the rest but that's just because the overall increase everywhere is increasing and in a relatively fragile slow growing environment like northern norway just the sheer number of traffic will destroy places right even without even without bad ethics just the mere fact that feet are traveling across the land right will create uh, irreparable erosion. So 
So yeah, something needs to be done at some point. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's so weird. It's like um, as landscape photographers, I feel like it's such a difficult thing for us to think about because, I mean, think about you as an example. Like so much of your livelihood depends on. Um, an increase in tourism and an increase in desire to travel to a specific place. And on the flip side of that, the there's like a point in which that becomes a bad thing because that place then becomes ruined. So it's like, like it's really hard to maintain that, that balance where you um, where you're not ruining a place, but you're also not making it to where like, no one goes in nowhere. It's, it's so, it's so tough. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, like for winter, for example, there's a few beaches that I just, I won't go to photograph Northern lights at because they're too popular and it just turns into chaos. And (laughs) it's like, there's 50 plus tripods lined up on the beach and yeah, then the car shows up and they don't know how to turn off their, their headlights because it's a rental car. Then they're shining their lights across the beach and everyone starts like shouting and waving and like (laughs) yelling. And it's like, if, if I'm on my own, I can just sit there and kind of like laugh. But if I'm, yeah, if I'm got any group there, then it's not a good experience for them at all. And so kind of, so then I'm limited on where I can even go with my groups because of just the overall popularity. And then you're kind of like push, push to the edge and edge of uh, locations more and more. So, but yeah. uh, a big solution long-term, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to it. It's basically kind of leave as little traces as possible and have the best ethics, especially when you're in the wilderness. What do you, what do you think is driving uh, so many, so many people to, to, to go to these specific destinations to take photographs? Because as, as we're talking, I'm thinking, well, it's because, you know, People are motivated by the by this idea that they can take a photograph and they can sell it, but that's not that only speaks to a very small segment of photographers, I think, because I feel like the majority of people that go out and take photos aren't actually trying to sell those photos. So it's like I don't know, like is it this idea that people just want uh, they want something to be proud of, like that they created or like, what do you think is motivating people to, to go to these destinations that are obviously, they've obviously been photographed a billion times. So like, why, why, why else, you know, why are people doing that? Yeah, I don't quite know. I mean, I kind of asked myself the same thing. Like if people couldn't show or tell other people that they were doing an activity, would they do it? <laughs> like, would they go hike to the mountain if they couldn't show everybody that they had hiked to the top of the right. mountain? And I think, like, just from my travels here, like, how much time I spent in Lofoten, like, there's a lot more people hiking now that would have, five years ago, they would have just kind of driven around and seen the scenery coastally and, like, stopped at the beaches, but not gone up into the mountains. But now more and more people are putting that effort to go up into the mountains. And, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the motivation well, is. But I think, show, I think showing that you've been and done it and look at this view... I think is quite a, a driving factor of it. Yeah. I mean, so after you had your first uh, chance visit to Norway because of the foot and mouth disease, like what, what motivated you to keep, to keep going back? 
there's kind of a specific spot here on the foot and that just kind of left a big, big mm-hmm. mark on me. And then, so it was about five more years in 2006 before I made my next trip back. And then I've more or less come back every year since then until moving here. But also the way I like to photograph is I like to kind of get an in-depth kind of knowledge and study of, of a few locations rather than just going, spending a week everywhere mm-hmm. in the world. So, so most places that I kind of, I figure out that I like this place, then I like to come back again and again and see the different seasons and has, as the time passes, cause mm-hmm. everything's always changing. And most of these places are kind of like in the North with bad weather. So it's always different every time <laughs> right. you come anyways. So, so you never know what you're going to get. And so, yeah. So, I mean, your motivation has nothing to do with, uh, proving to people that you did something or, or even commercially. So it's, it's more, it's more rooted in just your interest in a location and in terms of like the way it made you feel and, and like how special that place, um, like impacted you. Yeah, I think I think specifically for Lofoten, yeah, my first connection was uh, a social connection and a personal connection more than a, like I wasn't I wasn't a photographer when I traveled here the first time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but then I came back as yeah as a bit of a starting photographer, let's say in two thousand six. Right. And so, but yeah, but it's definitely been more of a, a personal connection for me for this place than just like a working one. Right. Right. And and now that I live here, like half the time, I'm actually just like surfing or skiing or like doing stuff actually without a camera i'm actually a bit lazy i feel like (laughs) you're you're local you're local (laughs) yeah now i kind of need to kick myself especially like i haven't taken photos in a week or two (laughs) maybe i should go up to the mountains instead of go surfing again (laughs) right so uh, yeah yeah no i have the same problem here in colorado it's like every i don't know i feel like same thing like maybe a couple weeks go by and i'm like i should probably go take some photos (laughs) like you know like uh that's one of the reasons I moved here. Like maybe I should actually go do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I try and write like I, I do write like a blog post every Friday, like Friday photo on my uh, six eight north website. And I try and keep it like as current as possible. Like all oh, these are the recent conditions or like it's autumn now or the first snow or blah blah blah. But then yeah, but sometimes this year I've been like, ah, I really don't have anything to post, so I have to look for something from the archives and just talk about something old. Because, yeah, I've been a bit too lazy. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny when you live in a really beautiful place and then you photograph the heck out of it. Um, I don't know. I've, I feel like sometimes it's like it feels you're like, yeah, it's uh, it's normal life now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like I like like Monday, I'll probably go to the climbing gym because it'll be bad weather uh, maybe Tuesday if the weather clears. I'll go surfing and like we have a really actually world class wave in a place called Unstad that's yeah, also taken off, uh, like the popularity of that's grown exponentially as well in terms of tourism and people surfing there that like five years ago, there was nobody there. Now there's two surf schools and like a surf camp and all kinds of stuff going on there as well. So it's, yeah, things are on the up and up out here in the, uh, the edge of the world. Yeah. So sounds like, um, in Lofoten specifically, or especially, um, there's been a lot of uh, changes um, over the years. Um, obviously, um, because of the increase in tourism, I'm sure that they've, uh, I'm sure that everyone is kind of, you know, benefiting from that in some ways. Although 
in some ways they're probably, I mean, there's probably pros and cons to that, but economically it's probably had a significant impact. Yeah, definitely. And also in terms of just uh, the day-to-day lifestyle in that, like five years ago, if you're having a cafe in Reina or some of the small villages, you couldn't stay open year-round because there wasn't mm. enough people. But now there's enough kind of people gradually in the shoulder seasons and definitely in the winter season now that you can have cafes open. And then that means the locals who have traditionally not been, the northern Norwegians don't go out like to restaurants or stuff that often. But now that they're seeing that there's cafes open year-round, they decide like, oh, it's actually nice to go out. And so you see more local people as well, like, yeah, being out about more than they would have been, I think, in the mm. past. Yeah, I bet that's been really fascinating to see the direct impact of um, the popularization of a location because it's such a microcosm. Um, and you've been there long enough now to where you've been able to see how it's shifted over the years and how like every season or every um, year people are uh, behaving in different ways in response to that increase in tourism and, and what that's meant to the people that live there traditionally and things like that. Yeah, but I'd say not 100% of the locals are happy with it. <laughs> I, um, I, I do notice more like aggression. Like I've had some people, yeah, like get off the road, even when I was clearly not even on the road. And like, if I like, I noticed people like honking more of the cars. But it's also because, especially in wintertime, there's a lot of people that aren't prepared to drive here in winter. And so there's a lot, a lot of cars crashing off the sides of the roads. <laughs> and wow. so... Like, as beautiful as the islands are, it's not like a, a theme park here. It's like people do live and work and have to drive their kids to school. And they don't want to get in, like, a head-on crash because somebody's, like, looking at the light and not looking at the road on, like, a snowy winter day or something like that. Right. So uh, there is, yeah, there is some complaining and some, some politicians have even said, like, oh, do we need to start testing people to see if they can drive? Because maybe lots of people are coming here from countries that they've never seen snow before. And then suddenly they're driving with studded tires on ice-covered roads that are already narrow to begin with in summertime. And even more narrow in wintertime when there's a, a berm of snow on the edge of the road. So And when it's dark, constant, almost constantly. So it's there is some kind of, yeah, a bit of stress in some areas. Yeah, no doubt. Um I'm curious, like, what are what is Norway, and maybe more specifically uh, locally, like, what what are what are they doing to address the significant uh, visitation increases? That, that's a, a big, big question. Um, the problem locally is that Lofoten from Lofoten from the outside world is just kind of seen as Lofoten, but locally, it's actually four municipalities that all have their individual governments, budgets, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and they don't always communicate the best in between each other. <laughs> so, uh, so a big issue in the last years has been trash and just people, the trash cans, the one trash can that's been at a popular locations overflowed. And so now the next people just put all their trash bags on the ground and then it blows all over the place. So there's definitely been some good, good work with the local trash agency of providing much more like trash bins in like any kind of parking area. And then recently in the last year, they've also received some funding um, to build toilets, which are much needed in like way out of the way places like Unstad, for example, 
um, there would be hundreds of people camping there on an average night in summertime, and there's no toilet facilities at all, other than the campground, but that's only for people staying at the campground. And there's a few other places like that as well. But sometimes it's actually been like the local village itself that forms an organization we call a Grunderlag, which is like, uh, I don't quite know the English translation, but like local kind of nonprofit organization to kind of fund it and build it themselves. Mm. But then they've started charging some like parking fees and usage fees at places that used to be free, for example, mm -hmm. which I'm kind of not so into myself because I like nature to be free as much as possible. But on the other hand, toilets are needed in these places because of the use is so high. But nor or Lofoten itself is also where a bit the the central government in Norway has not allowed Lofoten to raise its own tourist tax, for example, like say like where I'm from in Santa Barbara, if you stay in the hotel at night, there's like a couple of dollars that are as a bed tax that goes to the goes to the city right. to then fund like extra infrastructure that's needed to handle the right. tourism. But the, Nor right. the Norwegian government doesn't want to give that ability to the local communities huh. to do it themselves. But then all on the other hand, all the funding to the communities is based on population. Huh. And like the island I live on only has 1,300 people on it. And Lofoten as a whole is only about 24,000. And so if we have half a million tourists visiting here per year, but we're paying, for, we only receive the funding for a quite small rural population, right. then we just don't have the money in the budget. And like most of the communities out here are quite like over, overspent. And like even Moskines has like turned off the streetlights to save like $10,000 a year because they don't have the money. Interesting. So, I... yeah. So there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff that like the idea that Norway is, has oil and it's rich exists in some places, but not everywhere and not up here. Like we're, we're quite rural and we're quite countryside, even as beautiful as the location is. Yeah. I had no idea that they, um, that they didn't, uh, allow like local taxation. That That's interesting. No, they don't want the idea that Norway is an expensive country, hmm. which I think anyone from outside of Norway would laugh at that thought because it is an expensive country. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I mean, that's how I felt in Iceland when I went there. It was like very expensive, but then like you had to pay money to use the bathroom basically everywhere you went. Which now, the way you describe it, I'm I'm assuming Iceland probably has a, has some similar challenges you know, with an increase in people and maybe maybe not the ability to apply local taxation for tourism. And so they're not able to, like, tackle this problem on a local level. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think Iceland's even worse because they're only, what, like 350, 400,000 people in the whole country. Right. So it's, yeah, it's even kind of a, the locals to tourism ratio is quite high. Yeah, I mean, I was constantly just blown away at like how few restrooms there were in in places that uh, you would expect a restroom. You know, like here in the United States, you go to, I mean, even in the national forest, like the the national forest uh, system has built in restrooms at very like popular places where they know that there's going to be a high usage, but those places have been receiving high usage for like 20, 30, 40 years. And I feel like this, this problem of increased tourism to these popular 
uh, destinations for Northern Lights photography and things like that, that problem has only started in the last uh, five to 10 years, like you were saying before. Yeah, definitely. But sometimes, but it's like I said before, it's, it's always been popular here in summertime. Right. So I think sometimes they've like, they've just woken up from a coma and like, oh, there's people everywhere. What do we do? <laughs> but it's like, there's been signs of it for years and years and years that it's, it's coming and it's coming. But I mean, so there, but there are, there are definitely positive changes in toilets being built where they need to be built, but it's still not enough at the moment. Yeah. But another issue with out here, out here though, which is kind of different than much of the rest of Norway is that almost all of Lofoten is privately owned. Hmm. Um, so then you have those additional issues of kind of dealing with the landowner. If you want to build some infrastructure of where there's kind of already a, a previous right of way for parking, for example. Right. But now we do want to build a toilet there or something. So it's not quite as simple as just saying like, we need a toilet here. Let's build it. Right. That's ah, crazy. Um, one of the other things I was curious about um, in terms of the Norwegian culture, um, especially since you have such a history there um, and you can compare it to what you've experienced in the United States. Um, how, what is the difference there? Like, is there a lot of, uh, how large is the community of people there in terms of their appreciation for natural places and or like um, their desire to get out and take photographs? Um, photography wise, I wouldn't say there's that many kind of Norwegian photographers or like the average person's going out. Like a lot of people take their like their phone snapshots, but as a whole population wise, I'd say the Norwegians are probably one of the most active like outdoor populations in the world. Like anywhere from like the young teenagers, like you see lots of school trips of the of the school classes, like out hiking or out camping or out skiing. And then you also see equally see as many groups like seventy or eighty year olds out hiking and out doing stuff. So I would I would describe Norway as you know, quite an outdoor country overall. And they definitely appreciate the the landscape they have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like they, they all seem like they're born with a pair of skis on their feet, which makes me really jealous. <laughs> right. But I'm stumbling my way down a mountain, they're just like, oh, da, da, da. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're always winning like the uh the in the Olympics, they're always crushing like the cross country skiing and the like all those kinds of like long those long events where you have to cross country ski like 20 kilometers, like they're just crushing it every time. Yeah. I want to say in the last winter Olympics, they got like one of the highest medal counts, if not the highest. Medal <laughs> yeah. Count. Which is um, awesome. they did pretty good for a country of five ish million people. So, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, they definitely like, they appreciate the landscape and they make use of winter and do winter stuff when it's winter and summer stuff when it's summer. Yeah. And, but on the other hand, I think that's also a bit of an, uh, of an oversight in, in regards to tourism is that I, I think they kind of think that all the tourists coming here know how to use the landscape the same way the Norwegians oh, do and have that up. That makes sense. But maybe, but maybe when like you have your 20 year old couple from France or something coming here, this might be their first ever time camping. Right. And so where are they getting their information? Now they're probably getting it from social media. So they're seeing a bunch of people building campfires in places that probably shouldn't be built. And this kind of like cool looking outdoor lifestyle, but maybe that's not actually suitable to the location they're coming to. Oh man! And so there is, so I'm actually working with some local organizations and we try and raise some funding to kind of put up more signage and kind of locally educate 
like tourists coming here that like on kind of leave no trace ethics because maybe they just don't even have any experience with it. And so that's something that I think we need to be done a little bit. Like for example, for like me going up in California and like my first kind of trips into the Sierra or something like you're always going to get like a permit from the ranger station. And then they're saying like no fires over 10,000 feet, like don't camp a hundred feet next to a lake or whatever, like always bury your shit, like blah, blah, blah. So you kind of learn that. But coming up here from any major city in Europe, this could be your first experience with wilderness. And so if there's nobody here telling you what's right, you can't really be blamed for kind of not knowing. Yeah, I mean, that is a challenge. I mean, I feel like we have that that problem here in the United States um, all the time, too. But I feel like you're, you make a great point that in a place like that, that that's so extreme and and the people that live there, I mean, in the United States, it's so much more, uh, <clears throat> there's just so much more diversity in terms of people's experience levels. But if you, if you're from a country like that, where like you kind of just, almost everyone just kind of grew up with it. It seems like that would be quite the shock to realize like there's like people coming there from all over the world that have never been to a place like that before. I feel like that that does generate even even more extreme problem than we have here in the United States. Yeah, definitely. And like in like winter or something, I'll be like strapping on my skis, getting ready to go on like a ski tour. And then a car, like a rental car will pull up and there'll people ask like, where's the trail? <laughs> and I just kind of like point up the mountain. Like, I don't see a trail. I'm like, well, it's winter. There is no trail. <laughs> like you go that way. <laughs> and they're kind of like, like there's no signs, there's no markers. And they're kind of shocked sometimes. Like, oh, I thought there was a trail. I'm like, yeah. There is in summertime, but now it's covered in snow. Right. And yeah, so. Well, I'm curious, um, there in Norway, like what is the general population's attitude towards photography? Uh, I wouldn't say there's an opinion for or against. I mean, I think like, yeah, in the outdoors, everyone's taking uh, at least camera photos or uh -huh. phone photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but specifically Lofoten wise, I would say the issue is kind of dangerous behavior that's putting like the locals at risk or also the tourists at risk in that like a lot of photographers dress in all black and I like to call them kind of photography ninjas <laughs> right. but when you're when you're standing around in like twilight in January when there's only like two to three to four hours of daylight anyways um it gets really dangerous on these narrow roads to all of a sudden like, come around the corner and I even experience this myself quite often then there's just a bunch of people dressed in all black standing in the middle of the road. Right. And so that is kind of, yeah, that's putting some comfort, some conflict between the locals and incoming photographers. Whereas like the locals, when you see them out walking at night, like walking their dogs or just going on a walk, they wear like the high vis, like, like Caltrans vests or something, or else they have like, like reflectors dangling from their arms and like they're dressed in kind of like, don't run me over. Right, right. But uh, but a lot of the accommodations are starting to kind of provide that stuff for the people coming here and say, like, wear this stuff when you're out just for the safety of everybody. Right. Um, I'm curious, too, like, uh, have you found that there's um, a lot of native photographers in general that like to take pictures of the landscape with, you know, high-end cameras? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely more and more. Like, there's a few guys here locally that um, I'm friends with and – we don't go out shoot together too much, but we definitely like, yeah, it's a small place. So we bump into each other right. fairly often. And 
Yeah. Do you, do you feel like um, uh, the Norwegians uh, view photography, landscape photography in general? Do you feel like they view it as art, or or, or is it more of a um, kind of a, a journalistic kind of approach? Uh, I would say it's it's a mix of both. There's definitely some kind of like if you look at the online forums, some Norwegians are definitely in the very like art art side of stuff. Okay. And then like even myself personally, I'm a bit more in like the journalistic, keep it mostly how it was side of things. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, the whole spectrum in between. Right. Um, <clears throat> Cause I, I've always, I've always heard that. Um, and I think uh, Alexander Otto and I talked about this, that um, in general, you know, not obviously everywhere, but in general, like it seems like photography isn't necessarily viewed quite so much as an art as it is here in the United States. Yeah, I would kind of go along with that a little bit. I think, I think in the United States, like the, like kind of like the popular names I know in the United States push things uh, artistically and creatively much more than I would say the average European photographer I know be it a Germans or British or whatnot. Uh-huh. Uh, so wh- why? Like, I've just, I'm always wondered why do you, why is that? Or have you I, figured it out yet? <laughs> I would almost think it would be the opposite actually. And because right, so like, much of right. Europe and its nature, especially in like the UK or Germany, there's not really much wild nature left that hasn't been touched by man. Like Norway, we're quite exceptional that we have tons of wild wilderness. Whereas the U.S. is almost completely wild in the West. And so there's no power lines, no roads, no anything. So I would think actually the U.S. would tend to go for a much more pure landscape photo ethically and showing like this is the beauty we have. Right. Rather than kind of pushing it to this more artistic, almost CGI-ish look, which happens quite a lot, I think. Right. So, but it seems to be the opposite somewhat. I wonder... um... I wonder if that has to do with um, the uh, <clears throat> the uses of that photog- of that photography as art in the different cultures. Because I know in the United States, um, you know, so much of uh, it doesn't have to be, but I feel like it kind of gets pushed this way. That so much of um, photography gets pushed kind of commercially in terms of like, what can I do to my photograph to make it more appealing to somebody that wants to buy it. And so then I think that, um, you know, in all pursuits in a capitalistic society, like it forces innovation, but it also forces people to do some pretty wacky wild stuff. And, um, and sometimes that's good. And sometimes that bad, I wonder if it has to do with like our economies and, and like what, what motivates people to actually, um, you know, edit their photo, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure, but like sometimes it seems like there's a almost like nuclear arms race to have the most dramatic image possible with like <laughs> right? everything going on from like Northern Lights, dancing unicorns, like <laughs> volcanoes <laughs> erupting and blah, 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 all in one image. And I'm like, okay, but uh, yeah. Yeah, um, I no, totally. Um, it's interesting though. I feel like um, I feel like there's kind of this undercurrent movement going on for more simplistic um, kind of smaller, like more intimate scenes that I'm seeing more and more of that um, really appeals to me personally. And um, I think the beauty of that too is that it's not location dependent. It's not like 
you, you go out to a very specific spot that you saw on Instagram and you can produce a photo like that. Like I can take a intimate scene and you, it could be from anywhere in the country and you wouldn't know, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, especially out here, like there could be, especially in wintertime, like quite unlimited abilities for just abstract photography that like, I even have to look at photos that I took. I'm like, where did I take that? If I'm looking <laughs> at it some months later. Yeah. But then on the other hand, there's also some mountains that I'm quite familiar with. And then I see them online and I'm like, yeah, that's quite a bit steeper than it should be. And, uh, yeah. So uh, both happens. Uh, <laughs> dude, that happens to me all the time here in Colorado. So like, man, I guess, I mean, I'll, I'll let you go first, but like, what does that, how does that make you feel as someone who's been to those places, seen those places, and then you see people posting those photos of those places and they're like doing all that, like over dramatization in terms of like, like making the mountains look different than they actually look in real life. Personally, it doesn't bother me. Like people can put in show what they want, but work-wise when I'm guiding workshops and taking people to locations, um, like oftentimes I'll ask some people like, Oh, what do you guys, is there any th- things you scenes you kind of might want to shoot in the area? And sometimes they'll show me images. And I'm like, Oh, we were there yesterday, but they won't, <laughs> they won't recognize the scene of what they were standing in front of versus the photo they're looking at on Instagram or 500 PX or somewhere else, because it's been so distorted from reality that they can't actually recognize that they were there. Yeah. And so that can be a bit frustrating of the expectations of reality. Like Lofoten and Norway, it's beautiful enough. It doesn't need to be distorted. Right. So the mountains are steep enough. The mountains are high enough. Everything, it's enough here. And so it's kind of, yeah, it's, yeah, it makes, it it can make things difficult for me. I'm saying like having to manage expectations of like, well, you're not going to get that photo because that photo does not exist. So we can't take it. I mean, you can create it in Photoshop, but you're not going to take that with your camera and you're not going to see it with your eyes. Right. Yeah, I know I had a very similar experience, which I've talked about several times on the podcast, so I won't rehash it, but it was frustrating for me as a photographer. I just, like, you know, I, I saw a photo. It looked really cool. That place looked awesome. I wanted to go see it, and then I went there, and I was like, this this place doesn't exist. What the hell? You know? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's tough because, like, it's this intersection of um, – travel and tourism and in photography and like i feel like if you're in if you have you want to if you're you're trying to achieve both like you want to see these amazing locations but you also want to photograph them um and you're driven by the photos that you see of these places um you almost have to look at every photo you see with like a, a high degree of skepticism and like compare it to other photos of that place um to see if it's actually like realistic yeah definitely and I think it's one thing, like, if you're photographing, you kind of ignore stuff that's around you. Like, say you take, like, Horseshoe Bend or something like that. Then you take a nice photo of Horseshoe Bend, and you're not quite showing the hundreds of people that are standing right next to you, to your left or right. Or, like, there's a, a famous hike down south of Norway called Trolltunga. Oh, right, and right, it's right. Like you've, you've probably seen the photo of, like, the person standing on the end of this rock. What you don't see is, like, the hundred people standing, like, the Disneyland line, all waiting to take that photo as well. Yeah. And so it's kind of one thing not to show the periphery, but then maybe if there's a giant like power line or parking lot in the middle of something and someone photoshops that out and then you go there expecting the scene to look something like that. And then it's like, well, 
that doesn't look the way it was shown to me. I think, yeah, then you have to be a bit more skeptical and that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely, um, I definitely, as a person who likes mountains and has climbed a lot of mountains, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people over dramatically stretch them either by squishing the sides in or by pulling the bottom and top up or down, like, in Photoshop, like, you know, using the distort tool or free transform or whatever they're doing like that. Like, I understand doing it a little bit to like, it's accentuate something, especially if you're shooting with a wide angle lens and the mountain looks smaller than it really was in real life. I get all that, but like just making it look way more dramatic and steep just because you want the photo to look more striking. Like that, that drives me nuts. (laughs) And out here these days, there's also a lot of uh, fake Northern Lights photos going around uh, with like, like the Northern Lights don't come sideways out of the horizon. And like, I even have like other people that I work with and guide with asking me about locations and showing me photos. and like, eh, yeah, that doesn't exist. And so there's also that, which makes things difficult. Like, cause then you can create perfection in Photoshop, which would be maybe like a, a one in a once in a 10 year photo if it could even exist and lots of times they actually take it too overboard. So it's not even realistic, but yeah, it's, it's so funny. Like what people are doing nowadays to, well, I can only guess what their motivations are, but um, I don't, I don't really buy the whole, I'm doing it cause I'm trying to be artistic. I think people are doing it because they want to stand out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like I don't fault the people for doing this cause they all have like, much bigger Instagram followings and social media followings than me. So it's obviously working and it works. If the public's impressed, then that's kind of perhaps what counts at the end of the day. Anyhow, even if you're trying to be ethical. At what cost though? Like what is like, I feel like there's a cost to that, um, to that followership that you're gaining that people aren't necessarily thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's, yeah, it's like I said, like people have to go further and further and further and further and further. And like at the moment, yeah, what will the end be? I don't know, but it'll be, yeah, surrealism basically. Right. Like just kind of, yeah, just everything looking like it's out of Lord of the Rings. And <laughs> Yeah, I mean the cost, the cost to me is um, like these places are no longer real, you know, like um, – which, you know, if people were creating scenes that were obviously not real, you know, like, I can't remember the guy's name, but like, probably f- six or seven years ago, he was posting these like Photoshop creations, but they were obviously fake. Like, they were artistic creations with like really surreal elements added and things like that. And it was obviously not a real place. But when you take a real place and you look at, you make it look not real. Um, for people that have never been to that place before, um, they get lured into thinking that that place actually exists. And then, and then when they go there, like it's this huge letdown. And then they're, I don't know. I feel like there's some unintended consequences that happen from there in terms of like people's connection to a place. And when you don't have a connection to a place, then you're no longer going to treat it the same way in terms of your ethical approach to it and things like that. I feel like, there's some unintended consequences that a lot of people just aren't thinking about when they process a photo. Yeah. I th- yeah. I think definitely. And it'll lead to kind of like over expectations of what you'll find. And then you'll be let down by reality. 
<laughs> but the reality of, of the landscape and nature shouldn't be a letdown. Right. Um, which I think that's why you're going to it because you should find something interesting and like you know, fantastic. And, and there's, and so when you're seeing this like hyper saturated, hyper realistic world, and then you go to a place that should just be amazing if you had never seen it before, but you've seen so many, or your expectations of it are so high, then it only becomes a letdown. But yeah, I think that's that's not good in the long term, I don't think. No, I agree, man. Well, cool, dude. So um, I've got uh, two more questions for you. Um, so based on the name of the podcast, F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, what advice would you have for other landscape photographers? I think probably some other people have said it before, but my biggest piece of advice is just shoot, shoot, and shoot. Um, just time behind the camera. I think you get more comfortable with the camera. And then also move, like especially when you're with a tripod. Even think about composing first and then kind of set up the tripod for the composition rather than just setting up the tripod at the same height you always set it up at and take the, take the same photo from the same angle. Yeah. So shooting and moving, I think, are quite important parts. Yeah. And also, I actually had a tip from a client of mine some years ago was um, if you can put your camera into black and white mode, well, so if you're still shooting raw, but put the JPEG mode into black and white, and then you can see the on live view the composition you're looking at it without the effect of color and that can create an entire different an entirely different way of looking at the scene and sometimes you actually might focus much more on like stronger compositions and being distracted by color you're looking more at shapes and lines and and things like that that makes sense or sometimes yeah if you have this fantastic sunset but compositionally the sunset actually doesn't work for the photo it's a stronger photo. Maybe it only include part of it or even just mostly foreground and not even so much sky. So I think that can be for beginning photographers, help you to see better, see composition better without being distracted by color. Yeah. One of the things that I've been trying to do more lately though, which is kind of similar to that is, um, is not including any sky at all, but, um, especially even with like sunrises and sunsets, you get that, you know, you get that nice glow on your um, subjects, but um, you don't necessarily have to include the sky. Yeah, definitely. And like, I've actually found myself shooting with like a telephoto lens quite a lot in the last year for some reason, just maybe changing style. So yeah, like at 70 to 200 quite often for landscape work, then not just at like 14 millimeter or something like that. Yeah, me too, man. I've, I've been shooting a lot more with my, I have a, 70 to 300 and i i I feel like especially in autumn like i have i think i have that lens on probably 80 percent of the time now it's crazy (laughs) yeah definitely yeah focusing on details of the trees the leaves like yeah doing some quite like abstract stuff like shooting through like an autumn tree with like yeah it could be really really cool yeah like just focusing on like a leaf that's somewhere in there but everything else just falls out of focus and yeah really abstract i do i did that quite a bit as well yeah um cool dude so uh who do you think would be uh awesome to hear on the podcast if you want to talk to uh, another uh person living here on lafoten and actually an australian photographer i'd recommend a guy named neil bloom um him and i actually travel out in the mountains quite a bit but uh him being australian he looks at things yeah a bit differently than me (laughs) um also a german photographer named lars schneider 
he's mostly kind of like a, a commercial photographer, like quite a quite busy guy. But he traveled out to Pharaoh a lot, and I've actually met him here in Lofoten some years ago. And then perhaps my one of my biggest contemporary influences would be a Scottish photographer named Bruce Percy. And I don't know if you've heard of him, but he, yeah, his stuff is just amazing. Like, like as many people as going for the, as I said, like the super, super dramatic include everything images, Bruce like distills it down to just the necessary elements and turns into beautiful, beautiful work. Yeah. So, I really like his stuff too. I, I can't remember who the first person to recommend him was, but, uh, I feel like you might be the third or fourth person to recommend him now. And, um, um, I really like his stuff too. So yeah, it's a great recommendation. I appreciate it. Yeah. Amazing work. Yeah, dude. Well, damn dude. Thank you so much. This has been, uh, really fun. And, uh, you've got me really jonesing for the Northern lights again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time slide, but yeah, nice chatting with you and yeah, definitely come back North and whenever you can. Absolutely. The dude. lights, the uh, lights will be out. <laughs> well, hopefully, I mean, hopefully. Yeah. You never know, right? <laughs> Just check the weather. Yeah. 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 Uh, well thanks to Cody for uh, taking the time to visit with us on the podcast this week you can check out the liner notes on my blog at mattpainphotography.com with tons of links to Cody's work and uh, to all the topics we talked about on the episode so check it out Um, thanks also to everyone who has recently written a review about the podcast over on iTunes It's definitely the number one way to help get the word out about the podcast. So I love hearing from people over there. I love reading the reviews. And uh, if you leave a five-star review, I thank you on the show. So let's keep those going. Um, I also would love it if you shared uh, just a post on social media, you know, Facebook or Instagram. Just share what you like about the podcast and feel free to tag the podcast. uh, F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen or map pain photography, whichever, just uh, get the word out. I love to see that. Um, I'm also really thankful for all the generous support we've received over on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. Um, our next goal over there is to create a $1,000 conservation award for a landscape photographer that's doing meaningful work. So I'm really pushing people to support the podcast over there so we can make that award a dream come true. Um, as a subscriber to uh, Patreon uh, at the $5 level or higher, um, you get up access to all the bonus episodes. And this week's bonus episode with Cody is all about photographing the Aurora Borealis. So be sure to head over to Patreon and listen. Uh, thanks to our newest patron, Chris Murray. Your support is really appreciated. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, reach out on social media, Matt Payne Photo or Matt Payne Photography. Thanks. Have a great week.